Amen. You may be seated. Well, every so often our phones start making a siren-like noise and a message with something like this kind of pops up on our phone. Uh, it's an amber alert and alerting us to what really no parent wants to hear, which is that a child has been abducted. Anytime I get one of these alerts on my phone, I can't help but think about what if. You know, what if one of my children, one of my sons or my daughters was taken from my wife and I, what would I do? And as a father, I have actually thought about this a number of times, and where my brain naturally goes is, you know, Liam Neeson in the movie series Taken. And uh, as a father, as a man, I love watching movies like this. I love watching men who will give whatever it will take to get their sons or their daughters back to rescue the ones that they love. It's one of the things that gets my heart racing, my, my blood pumping, and why? Well, in part because I would do the same thing. You know, I would do whatever it would take to get my son or my daughter, ba- daughter back, uh, within the law, of course, so maybe not quite like Neam Neeson, but <laughs> I would do whatever it would take, and so would you. You would do whatever it would take to get someone you love back into your arms. We find this morning in Genesis 14, we find Abram rescuing his nephew Lot. Uh, Lot is in Sodom, and Lot is taken, and we find Abram doing whatever it takes to get his nephew Lot back, and in doing so, we find Abram showing great courage and sacrificial love due to his faith in God. There are two scenes this morning. Scene one is the abduction of Lot. Scene two is the rescue of Lot. We'll start with scene one, the abduction of Lot. Now, to remind you who Lot is, you might be thinking, who is Lot? Well, Lot, in case you don't remember, is Abram's nephew. And he parted ways with Abram, moving near the city of Sodom, and eventually, as we find in verse 12, moving into the city of Sodom near Gomorrah. But more on that to come, but first in verse one. In those days, kings of uh, king Amraphel of Shinar, King Arach of Elisar, King Kedolamor of Elam, and King Tidal of Gom waged a war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adamah, and King Shemember of Zeboim, as well as the King of Bela, that is Zor. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. Now, you say those names five times fast, and your tongue will for surely get twisted. And uh, just so you know, I just make that up. I don't know what the right pronunciation is. Just kind of say whatever comes to your mind in the moment. But uh, Moses, he gives us these two sets of kings. And these two sets of kings that have alliances with one another. And here's how the alliances are broken down. This eastern king alliance, uh, which we find uh, King Kledormor of uh, Elam, which is modern-day Iran. King Amraphel of Shinar, which is kind of modern-day Iraq. And King Arak of Elisar and title of Gom, which is modern-day Turkey, and here's a, a little map of this area. They're coming from the east, uh, all the way down from Elam, moving up towards what we'll find uh, the west here, towards the Dead Sea, where these other kings are at. And here's a, a picture. Google Maps is kind of giving you a sense of modern-day Middle East, where things are. So we have Iraq there, and that red uh, dot, or whatever that is, is kind of where King Kledormor would have been in that area, uh, modern-day Iraq, and so this is where we are kind of set up, and there's this eastern alliance of kings, and then there's this western kingly alliance, which is the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adamah and Zeboim, as well as Bela or Zoar, and so there's a map here of where these uh, cities are at, and if you see, it's kind of hard, I know, but the Dead Sea is in the middle, and down to the south there, a little bit east of the Dead Sea is where these cities are presumed uh, to be located, and so this is where we have, we have these two sets of of kings aligning together. And in verse 4, what we find is they, this western kings down by the Dead Sea, were subject to Kedolomor for 12 years. 
But in the 13th year, they rebelled. That after 12 years of being subjected to this king of Mesopotamia, these western kings of the Siddim Valley, the Dead Sea area, decided they were done. They had enough. They didn't want to be subjects any longer to this king, and so they rebelled. And what we find in verse 5 is that in the 14th year, Kedolomor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zizim, and Ham, Amim, and Sheba, Kiriathim. I don't know what that is. I just made that up. And uh, the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. And so here's kind of where they are set up. I'm going to go back to that map, is up towards uh, the north part. You see Damascus way at the top, and if you kind of come down, you see this area, Succoth, Ham, Rapham, where uh, these cities or these areas are. And so a year later, this king, King Clodormor, and these armies, these other kings that have aligned with him, they decide we're going to go attack the kings of the west down by the Dead Sea to punish them for the rebellion. And on their way down to the bottom there of the Dead Sea, they begin to attack these other cities on the east side of the Dead Sea there. More than likely because they too have probably withdrawn or rebelled against his dominion. So there's kind of this war plan that's twofold. One is to subdue this uh, Transjordan area coming down down the east towards the Dead Sea, and then to subdue the Dead Sea kings. And so first, they rout or they destroy the cities and take over the cities of the Transjordan, the Sinai. And the first tribe to fall were the Rephites. Rephites. And why is that matter important? Well, they were known like the Anakim to be famous for their height, to be these giants, to be these huge people. And so the, the first stroke or the first city that they subdued is the most intimidating of all the opponents, these giants of the Transjordan, which means everyone else is looking at what's happened to that city and thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to us? And King of the Dormor, he works his way all the way down, as far down south to the bottom of the screen there, into El Paran, conquering this whole area. And King Cladormor and led his, his army, this alliance of kings, to this sweeping victory, taking out just massive amounts of land and cities. And then we find in verse 7, they came back to invade En Mishpat, which is the Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Malachites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazan Tamar. Going back to that map again, you see they go down all the way to the south and they make their way back up to the north to the Kadesh, to the Ammonites, Amorites and the Amalekites, back up towards the Siddim Valley. They turn west, northwest, and they begin just taking out these different cities on the western side of the Dead Sea. Now this is a well-conceived, a well-executed strategy. And it left the five kings, the Western Alliance, down by the Dead Sea, just at their mercy. Right? No, no tribe could be summoned to help them because there was no one there. They had nowhere to flee. In fact, the Transjordan was so crippled, that eastern side, so crippled that when the coalition nations returned back to their eastern kingdoms, none would have had the capacity to attack them. Uh, one archaeologist, he wrote this, I found that every village in their path had been plundered, left in ruins, and the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkept, with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. This was a massive defeat, leaving this whole area decimated. And then this leads then to verse 8. And the battle between the king of Sodom and his cohorts and the king Kedilomor and his. Verse 8, then the king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, 
king of Adamah, king of Zeboim, the king of uh, Abela, uh, Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against King Kedormah and all of his alliances. So five kings versus four kings. So the king of Sodom gets his boys lined up, his allies, they're out there ready to fight, lined up for battle. If you go to that map, you see just where there's this kind of like star thing, the Siddim Valley right below the Dead Sea, that's where the battle is presumed to have taken place. And they're lined up ready to go, but what they find is what everyone else found is that they were no match for this powerful army. They were no match. And their rejection of this king and being under his authority led to devastating consequences. Verse 10, that now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, that tar and asphalt pits were native or native to the Dead Sea area, which the famous historian, uh, uh, Jewish historian Josephus, actually called the Asphalt Sea. Here's a picture of what an asphalt pit may have looked like near the Dead Sea, something like this, or you go to the next picture, which is not near the Dead Sea, but I think it gives a good illustration of these pits, this tar that people were falling into. That as they're running and escaping, trying to escape this army, there's this, these asphalt pits that ooze this heavy liquid asphalt just at the south of the Dead Sea. And many of the soldiers met a horrific death in these tar pits in the Siddim Valley, falling head first into this black ooze as they fled. I mean, you just think about that. You're running away and you're falling into these pits. I don't know if some people are just jumping in or they're, they're not seeing where they're going, exactly what's happening, but nonetheless, they're in these pits of tar. I mean, what a horrific way to die. And the rest, we're told in verse 10, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. So many died in the asphalt pits. The, those who could escape fled into the mountains. And what we find is all their stuff is taken. And these kings just keep marching on. But there's one more important thing that was taken by these kings, King Kedormor, the kings of the Mesopotamian area. Verse 12 they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and all of his stuff. Now, a question might be asked is, how did Lot get to Sodom to begin with? Well, remember what was happening in Genesis chapter 13. Lot and Abram were traveling together. Abram had just received all of these possessions from the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, and he gave some to Lot, and their, their flocks and their herds, they were growing, and the land was unable to support them. And there's this fighting that breaks out between, uh, between Lot's men, herdsmen, and Abram's herdsmen. And, and Abram says, no, no, we're not, we're not going to fight. We're not going to quarrel. We're not going to argue. So what we're going to do is we're going to separate. You, Lot, if you go left, I will go right. If you want to go right, I will go left. That Abram is generous to Lot and let him, lets him choose where he wants to go. So Lot looks out into the land, verse 10 of Genesis 13. He looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zor, as was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. And so Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. And the Lot journeyed eastward and separated, they separated from each other. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. How did Lot end up in Sodom? Well, we're told that he looked out and saw 
He looked out and saw him. I think, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, another way to say this is that he was dazzled. His eyes were caught. They laid hold of something. Dazzled by what? Well, by the appearance of prosperity. The land was well watered like the Lord's garden, like the land of Egypt. That he was dazzled by what he saw and he got sucked into it. And what we learn about Lot is Lot does not look through eyes of faith, but he looks through the eyes of his flesh. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, that we're to be people who walk by faith, not by sight. And Lot does the exact opposite. What does it mean to walk by sight? Well, I think John encapsulates that pretty well in 1 John 2. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's life. That when we live by sight as opposed to by faith, we pursue what feels good, what looks good, and what makes us look good to others. And Lot, he sees. And his eyes are caught. We've all been there. We see something and our eyes are caught in something. We can't get it out of our mind and we want to have it and we coveted and it's the greed the covetousness of lot that drives him that moves him to the city near sodom and then eventually he moves into this horrific city of sodom where men are sinning against god rebelling wickedly against the lord not just like they were sinning but the language that moses is using is to get our attention to say these were some horrible people their finger just up at god and so lot Lot moves to Sodom and he's eventually captured by these kings that are moving through from the the east down to the west. And so Lot and everything he owns is taken. And this wasn't just like they came in, kind of took some stuff and walked off. I mean, this was horrible. More than likely, Lot saw agonizing deaths. Women being raped. All of which was so common in ancient warfare. Perhaps he lost his own children and loved ones taken to some other place by some other people. And as he's trudging across the Transjordan towards Canaan's borders, what hope or what Lot is more than likely thinking is that his hope is lost. He has no hope. All his hopes are gone as he's taken by this powerful army. And so Lot is abducted which leads us to scene two in the rescue of lot verse 13 one of the survivors came and told abram the hebrew who lived near the oaks belonging to mamre at the the amorite the brother of eshcol at and the brother of aner and they were bound by a treaty with abram and so those remember who escaped some fell into tar pits others fled into the mountains and sometime perhaps after night had fallen uh, one of these men comes upon Abram's camp. Abram's camp, uh, scholars say, was only about 20 miles away, and so it's, it's realistic to assume that someone may have come into Abram's camp, or somebody did, but that it, it was realistic to assume that actually happened. And what happens when this man comes into Abram's camp? Well, verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. That Abram hears. He hears that Lot has been taken. And what Abram does is he gets his men. These men, they're Abram's private militia. Members of his extended family. Therefore, loyal, dependable, faithful men. Highly skilled bodyguards, protective forces of all of his possessions. 
And he says that he assembled them. And the Hebrew language here is dynamic. So when he says he assembled 318 of them, it literally means he drew out 318 men as you would draw a sword from its sheath. So Abram, his 318 men were his sword unsheathed, ready for war. As one commentator put it, out came the quivers and the bows, the swords were wedded to a razor's edge, spears thrusted into the sky, and these men went in pursuit of Abram's nephew, Lot. These men, the trained men of, of Abram, along with his allies, had assembled together and they pursued Lot, the rescuing of Lot. Verse 15 And he and his servants deployed against them by night and defeated them and pursued them as far as Obah to the north of Damascus. He brought all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods as well as the women and the other people. Apparently King Kedormor, he was just unaware. He wasn't expecting any any type of threat. I mean, if you were him, he had no reason to worry. I mean, he just had dominated everybody in this whole area. Just moving his way down the east of the Dead Sea all the way south and then back up to the the west of the Dead Sea. He is just destroying city after city, taking over people after people. In their minds, nobody could stop them. They had no reason to worry about anyone attacking them. But as night fell, Abraham and his 318 men descended upon the king and his army and swords, swords start swinging and clanging. Men start yelling Men in the camp getting struck by swords and spears and dying. And they're defeated. They stand no chance. This little army of Abraham defeats this mighty army who has taken over this gigantic territory in many civilizations. It reminds me, uh, the other week or last week, my kids, we were uh, eating lunch or about to eat lunch and they were, or dinner, one of the two, but they were looking out the back window and one of my kids was like, Dad, oh, there's a hawk on the swing set. And there's this red-tailed hawk on the back of our swing set. And in, the, in its talons it had another bird, like a robin. And it was holding this robin in its talons and the bird was trying to escape, get mo- and to, uh, move around and trying to escape and the hawk just pounds it down on top of the, the swing set. Just keeps pounding it down and then he takes his beak and starts going at it and there's just feathers flying everywhere in the air and my girls are looking at it horrified like that's so gross. My boys are like yeah let's go get the video camera you know like the phone and record it and so they record it on their their phone. I was going to show you a picture but I, I did, they didn't get very good quality. They got to learn their video uh, taking skills or <laughs> increase those skills but they just were this hawk just dominating this other bird. And that's what happened to all these other cities but yet there's like the script, the flip, the script is flipped and there's this Abraham, this small army that then turns and dominates this king from Mesopotamia. The Abraham's well-planned attack and the surprise destroying the evil armies of the east. And Abraham drives this army out of the promised land north of Damascus. You can see here on this map, just again, he's going all the way up the red, driving them up all the way north past Damascus, pushing them back into their own territory. This incredible feat. And I, I don't know what to compare it to. I'm a, I'm a sports 
a guy, I like sports, and so I just think about U.S. hockey beating uh, the Soviet Union, the 1980 Winter Olympics. I mean, this is a, a huge feat in the sports world. Soviet Union captured, you know, the men's ice hockey gold five of the six times in the previous Winter Olympics. And then you have Team USA, youngest team in the Olympic tournament and in national history, and they win four to three against the Soviets right in the middle of the Cold War. And they move on and they take gold from Finland. I mean, this massive accomplishment. That's the idea. There's this massive accomplishment, this massive feat by Abraham and his men. Now, here's the good question I've been thinking about this week. Okay, so that's great. So there's this war and, and kings and fighting and all these things. But why? Why did Abram rescue Lot? That, that's the thing I've been trying to think about. What, why did he go and put himself in harm's way to rescue Lot? I mean, you think about Abram and Lot here. Abram could have easily just elected to do nothing. I mean, Lot had made his own bed. He'd made his decisions. He, he saw the land. It was well watered. He's like, that's where I'm going. And he goes and he lives near Sodom. And he's got to know that the people of Sodom are just wicked. He's got to know that. And then he moves into Sodom. And you're like, Lot, what are you doing? And if you're Abram, you're like, you have all these reasons. Like, man, you're just, I mean, you, you've kind of made your own bed. You've carved your own path. You've you got to lay in it now. Like, you've got to deal with the mess that you made. Or I'm sure Abram's thinking, you know, wisdom would say, but people are going to get hurt at the expense of my nephew who seems to be kind of an idiot and not thinking straight. Or if you're Abram, you're like, I'm kind of the indispensable guy here. Like, God has made the promise to me that I'm going to be this great nation. From me, I'm going to bless all other nations. But yet, Abram doesn't make excuses. He doesn't justify not doing something because of Lot or what he thinks or whatever. But Abram takes action. Why? Why does he do this? Well, I think there's probably a number of reasons, but one reason is because of his faith in the word of God. Because of his faith, he trusted God. Now, let me connect this a bit. Abram, remember, when he went to Egypt, remember he's in the land, there's a famine in the land, and so he decides to go down to Egypt. Egypt is well watered on the Nile. They have plenty of resources, and he's trying to escape the famine. And as he's on his way to Egypt, he thinks to himself and then says to his wife, honey, you're very beautiful, and other men are going to see that you're beautiful. And other men are going to t want to take you as their wife. So here's what we need to do. You need to tell them that you're my sister. Now, Abram's not lying. He's just being somewhat deceitful because Sarah was his half-sister. And so they go into the land. But what happens? Well, it kind of works until Pharaoh hears about Sarah and her beauty. And so Pharaoh sends his men and he takes Sarah into his harem into his court and now Abram's kind of up a creek without a paddle like what am I going to do how am I going to get my wife back from this most powerful king in the land well as we know God steps in and he rescues Abram and Sarah and Abram goes to Egypt leaning on himself trusting in himself to scheming devising his own plans and he comes out of Egypt we see learning that he needs to depend on God not himself and we find him at the end of chapter 13 he has built an altar to the Lord worshiping God so he's in this place where he is trusting in God believing the word and the promises of God that God that the land that 
God had promised him would go to his descendants, that he therefore knew and believed that God was with him, that even if he was defeated, he knew God would stay true to his promises. And so two things here about faith. One is when we think about faith, faith produces courage. It leads to courage. Now, to be clear, when I say faith, I'm talking about faith in Christ, faith in his promises, not faith in some general abstract way, just in anything, but in the word of God. And Abraham was filled with courage, with boldness, in part because he believed God. Because he believed God, because he trusted God, he went out and he was willing to risk his life to get Lot back. And we see this throughout the scriptures. We see Men, we see women who are pictures of faith, or they have faith, and because of their faith, they have courage and boldness to do things that others would not do. Think about David here. In 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, Israel's lined up for battle against the Philistines. The Philistines on one hill, Israelites on another hill. Out comes Goliath, this nine-foot-nine-inch man. His armor, 125 pounds, the tip of his spear, 15 pounds. And he's just this giant of a human being. And he's taunting the Israelites. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 11, he comes out and he's telling them, Israelites, just choose one man to come and fight me. If you beat me, then we'll be servants to you. If I beat you, then you can be servants to us. And in verse 10, as the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and they were terrified. They were terrified. Then enters David, this shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. And he hears what's going on as he's bringing some things to his brothers. And he hears what's happening and what this Goliath man is doing. And he says, no, he is not going to defy God. I will deal with him. And his brothers mock him, people laugh at him. But verse 31, Saul overhears what happens. It's reported to Saul what David is saying. And he brings David in front of him. And David says to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David replies, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur. I would strike it down, and I would kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of living God and David says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David, this boy, but yet such great confidence and boldness. And he goes out to the Philistine, out to Goliath. And we know the story with a few rocks and his sling. He kills the giant who's defying the armies of the living God. And why? Why was David, did he operate with such confidence and boldness? Well, because he believed God. He trusted in the promises of God. Or you think about Hebrews chapter 11, this, this known as the hall of faith, these men and women who lived lives of faith. And what the 
author of Hebrews does, he kind of tries to sum it all up in the end in verse 32 through 40, and he says, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed in two, died by the sword, wandered in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, on mountains, hiding in caves and holes on the ground. How did these people live with such courage and boldness. Verse 39, all these were approved through their faith. They had faith in the God who made all things. Faith in the God who promised greater things, a life to come, eternal life. And brothers and sisters, what we need is courage. We need to have a backbone. We need a courage to preach the truth in a culture that is rapidly deteriorating and hostile toward the truth. We need courage to protect our kids from being indoctrinated with destructive ideologies about sex and gender equality. We need courage to tell our children no when other parents might be saying yes. We need courage to hold to our convictions provided they're right and well-reasoned when others do not. We need courage to open up our mouths to share with our neighbor, our coworker, family member, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That brothers and sisters, what we need is courage and we will find courage to do what is right no matter the consequences that we might face if we believe God and his promises. That faith leads to courage and boldness. That we will say things and do things we may not otherwise do or in the face of adversity, consequences that are before us that we may not want because we believe God we trust him, and therefore we do what is right and honoring to him. But there's something else associated with faith, not just courage, but that is sacrificial love. That when you think about faith, we should think about love, and we should think about it in the, in the terms of sacrificial love. Abram, rescuing Lot. What Abram did took sacrifice. There's a cost. He gathered his men. He put them in harm's way. I mean, they're going against this powerful army. I mean, they've just, just destroyed city after city, taking over civilization after civilization, and he sends his men into this lair, into their camp, to fight this army, the one to whom the promise of being a great nation and blessing to all their nations was given to, who is yet, though, to have the child in which that nation would come from, that Abraham put himself in a place of sacrifice, all for who? For a nephew who made foolish decisions. You see, faith, faith will move you towards others, towards loving others, towards making decisions that will cost us for the benefit of others. You see, to, to love someone, in part, it means that we're meeting a need in a person's life at a great personal cost to our own life. 
This is love. Love is meeting a need in a person's life at a great personal cost to our own life. Lot was in need. Abram stepped up to that plate to meet that need at a personal cost to himself. And faith then is not separated from sacrificial love, but it's rather deeply connected to it. In fact, in Galatians 5, Paul connects these ideas. Verse 6, he says, For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything, but what matters is faith working through love. Paul here, he's wrestling with the false teaching that if you get circumcised, then you can be saved, that getting circumcised, doing other things will earn or merit your salvation. And what he says in verse two, then he says, I, Paul, I'm telling you, if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not, be, will not benefit you at all. In other words, if you look to your own work, your own merit, or the merit of other things, things that you do, the all-sufficient worth of Christ dying for your sins to obtain your salvation will be of no use. That when you depend on your works, on doing things yourself to earn salvation, the work of Christ is rejected. So if our works don't merit salvation, the salvation Christ offers, then how do we receive it? What's the connection? Well, it's faith. Faith. What connects us with Jesus so the salvation he accomplished becomes ours is faith in him, trusting in his forgiveness, banking on his promises that when he went to the cross 2,000 years ago, he didn't go to the cross because he had committed crimes against the Roman government, but he went to the cross to die for the crimes that we have committed against God. And that the wrath of God was poured out on him so that the wrath of God would not be poured out on us and we would be forever separated from him in hell. That faith brings that reality into our life. What makes verse, so, verse 6 so remarkable is that faith, that faith connects us with Jesus and receives this justification is a faith that works through love. In other words, it's a kind of faith that proves its reality by producing love. Love does not merit or earn salvation. Loving others is not how we become right with God, but love, it proves the reality of the faith that receives salvation. There's this link between Christ's love for us and our love for one another. Faith. Faith, that faith is a link between Christ's love for us and our love for each other. That if we are a people of faith who trust in Christ, then we will be a people who love like Christ. And how did Christ love? Well, verse 16, 1 John 3, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us, that we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That if we truly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, and died on a cross to pay for our sin, to rescue us from the wrath of God and the punishment for our sin, that if that faith is a genuine faith, then we will love like Christ has loved. That we will meet needs in others' lives at great personal sacrifice and cost to our own life. And so brothers and sisters, this is who we want to be. We want to be a people who are living with courage and boldness and living with a sacrificial love due to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father,